Hey guys, welcome to the Persons with Lived Experience podcast, inspiring stories for unprecedented times with Dixie and Zona. I, to this day, I can't tell you, tell you the scale of this. I have no idea how many people were involved. I don't know exactly what pictures were exchanged. I don't know um, how much money or items or whatever was exchanged for these images or for these online relationships. I have no idea. And that's something I still struggle with today, not knowing what is still out there. This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take precautions for yourself. Thank you. Dixie, and I'm all about joy, justice, and fair trade fashion. I'm an anti-trafficking advocate, mom of many, and passionate worshiper. And I am Zona. I'm a writer, a speaker, a person with lived experience of human trafficking and homelessness, uh, a tiny house enthusiast, and a serial foodie. We are excited to have Becca Whitman with us. She's a survivor of childhood trauma and commercial sexual exploitation. As a teen, she had to fight to escape that exploitation and pave her own way toward healing. Now, Becca works as a survivor mentor with Elite, I'm sorry, Elite Center? Light Center. Light Center, I'm sorry. Um, She walks alongside youth and young adults that have also been impacted by sexual exploitation so they do not have to navigate life alone. Becca also works with local agencies and governments in order to share a realistic look at the commercial sexual exploitation of children and adults. Welcome, Becca. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Um, so we are excited to have you share your story. I think that it is something that a lot of people are facing and we're just starting to wrap our head around, you know, how do we accurately get supports and um, advocacy and awareness in the places that need it most. So we would love to have you share. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I will do my best to be <laughs> to explain everything as well as I can. Um, I guess I can start out by saying that my, what I experienced exploitation wise, um, my exploiter, primary exploiter was my mom. And so I was raised by her. Um, This resulted in, she began grooming me at a really young age. Um, There were a lot of things that led up to the exploitation. Um, There was some physical abuse, verbal abuse um, within the home, but I also experienced sexual abuse um, by multiple people. Um, all of which made me more vulnerable and made it easier for my mom to exploit me sexually online. Um, She would use, it started off very slowly. She would, it began sometime I was in middle school. Um, She began to run social media accounts as me. Um, And so I didn't really understand what was happening. I'd kind of get irritated because she would make a Facebook post. Um, that sounded like it was coming from me. I used to do cheerleading and so would say something like, oh, cheer practice was really hard today. I don't feel like doing my homework. Mm. And I would get frustrated because I'm like, I didn't post that. Why are you posting as me? 
Um, and it started really slowly um, and she would kind of dismiss me when I was upset about it. And then it would progress to um, messages. She would be messaging other people as me. And so these people would think they were talking to me, whether they were um, other boys my age, around 12, um, or they were adult men. And at first these messages were just friendly in nature. Um, and it was kind of the same process of, I might log into the Facebook account every few weeks. Um, and then I would see something, confront my mom about it, get upset. And then she would dismiss me and kind of make me think that I was the crazy one for being upset about it. Um, and then slowly these conversations turned sexual and romantic in nature. Um, and then she eventually transitioned it to like giving them her phone number. So as they were texting and calling with her and that way I couldn't see what was happening. Um, and I couldn't see exactly what she was doing, but she was still running social media accounts. Um, something really big that kind of before the exploitation started that really led to me not feeling like I could speak up about it was when I was 11, I experienced sexual abuse at the hands of a local church leader. He was 19. Mm -hmm. He was a leader in the youth group at the church I went to. And I had expressed to my mom that I felt uncomfortable around him. I felt physically unsafe and all of my concerns were dismissed. And she would invite him over to the house, just him, not with the youth group or whatever, to hang out with me. And I was 11 at the time, hanging out with a 19-year-old man that I felt physically unsafe with. And my mom continued putting me in that situation until eventually it led to him sexually abusing me. And I disclosed it almost immediately, but both my parents didn't take any action to make sure that I felt protected or safe. And that whole experience, it drilled some beliefs in my head of you're not worth protecting. Um, you don't have the right to have boundaries. And even if you express those, it doesn't matter because people are going to take what they want from you anyway. And that kind of set me up to be um, to not feel like I could even go to anyone for help because I was like, there's no point anyways, because nobody's going to help me. So this led to several years of my mom exploiting me in this way. It also she would. Um, share explicit photos of me with these people online, whether it was minor boys or adult men who thought they were talking to a child. So they're predators themselves. Um, and I, to this day, I can't tell you, tell you the scale of this. I have no idea how many people were involved. I don't know exactly what pictures were exchanged. I don't know um, how much money or items or whatever was exchanged for these images or for these online relationships. I have no idea, and <laughs> that's something I still struggle with today, not knowing what is still out sure. there to do with me. Um, Man. And it definitely, my mom used a lot of tactics to groom me, manipulate me. Um, I, she used, it's called, I don't know if y'all have heard of it, but like Munchausen by proxy syndrome. She um, subjected me to a lot of medical treatments and doctor's appointments that were either symptoms she made up or exaggerated. Um, this led to me getting diagnosed with some rare autoimmune disease that I don't have. <laughs> and I was getting having to get shots several times a week. And it was such a mental um, toll on me that it was just another thing on top of everything else causing just confusion. and. Um, she grew me to believe that she was the only person I could trust. 
Uh, my dad wasn't around very much when I was growing up. He just worked so much. So it basically gave my mom free reign to do whatever she wanted. Um, and she also made me believe that he was the devil on earth and everything bad in our lives was caused by him. And so I trusted no one else but her. Um, and so I just didn't know what to do, didn't really know where to go for help. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then I was able to uh, eventually, a lot of things led up to this. Um, but actually, it's funny that we're, do- we're doing this today because today is a seven year anniversary of the first time I ever disclosed <sighs> any of this. Um, nothing really came from that day. I disclosed to a family friend and today was the first today. Seven years ago is the day that I told my dad for the first time. Um, not much came from it. My dad didn't step up and do anything to help me. He didn't protect me. He didn't remove me from the situation. Um, but it led to me building up the courage over the next few months to then disclosing to a medical provider who ended up reporting it to DHR. And then I was removed from my family and luckily enough my best friend and her parents agreed to take me in so that I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to go to a foster home Wow! and that's what got me out and just completely changed the trajectory of my life is being able to go have a safe place to live with them wow. <laughs> yeah that's pretty major and uh I think a huge blessing that you had someone not only that believed you but was willing to say yes come be with us mm. a safe space Oh, yeah, I definitely they am so grateful for my best friend and her parents. They still I call them like my mom and dad and that's my sister. They're they're my family and um, they I lived with them for a year. They provided me. It definitely wasn't perfect. It was a hot mess of a year, Um, (laughs) but they provided a safe place where I could begin to come out of that survival mode and begin to process things that were things that had happened Um, and they were the first my best friend's parents were the first people my whole life to look me in the face and say we will do whatever it takes to protect you and I was 16 before I heard those words and heard somebody say Mm -hmm. we'll do what it takes to protect you and they they did so much for me (laughs) um it was a really hard year and I mean during that year I also experienced re-traumatization by medical professionals, law enforcement, um, DHR caseworkers um, who didn't, I mean at the time I don't think they really knew what to do with me. They didn't mm-hmm. know what, have a lot of knowledge about online commercial sexual exploitation and right. so they kind of just really didn't know what to do with me and I got swept under the rug and slipped through the cracks. Um, and I was, especially after I first disclosed, I had to, and DHR moved me from the home. I ended up being interviewed probably 10 times in one day while I was sitting in a hospital emergency room and was there for 12 plus hours. No one made sure I had anything to eat. No one made sure I had anything to drink. No one took the time to introduce themselves, make me comfortable before they made me repeat every single trauma I've ever experienced over and over and over. Um. And then it ended up having to be reun- being made to be reunified with my family when I was not comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I expressed that and the caseworkers pushed me and kind of coerced me into just saying, yes, fine, I'll go back. And I ended up having to move back in with my family a few months before I turned 18, which mm-hmm. was incredibly hard. <laughs> but I eventually was able to leave that, <laughs> leave that again. 
mm-hmm. it was a different experience the second time around because this time I knew I had my best friend's family that was going to back me up and support me. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was a different experience the second time around because I actually knew I had supports. Right. So when you first got to your best friend's family's house, what did they do with all of the medical stuff that had gone on? Like, did you have to get retested to whether you did have an immune disorder or were you still on all of that treatment? Um, I had stopped a lot of that treatment a little bit before that um, because it was just causing such a toll on me. It was making... um, like a lot of anxiety and depression, a lot worse. Um, I had stopped it a little bit before that. When I lived with them, we continued a couple follow-up appointments with like the juvenile rheumatologists and the doctors, but I didn't have those. All of a sudden the symptoms I was having, (laughs) I was not having anymore. And during that year, I didn't really have an issue with it. And since then have, I've seen a rheumatologist as an adult to like double check. And um, I don't have those those symptoms. A lot of the what I believe is a lot. I was having some symptoms such as like joint pain and body aches and things like that um, as a teen. But that was from chronic stress and complex trauma and all of that Mm -hmm. that I'm experiencing because that shows up in your body. And Mm -hmm. so I was sick all the time. I had joint pain, body aches, headaches. Um, and so I think that played a huge role in it. And my mom just exaggerated all of that and made it into a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she def- she just, to, to her, I was just something that she could get love, attention, access to minor boys. Um, all of this stuff, I was just a tool for her to get all of that. So in whatever way she could exploit me, she did whether that was sexually through um, using me to have online relationships, exchanging photos of me, um, or that was getting attention because, oh, her poor daughter has this rare autoimmune disease. I'm going to post about it all the time and get attention and love and support. Um, She used whatever way she possibly could to take from me for her own gain. That's so tough. It really is. And it ended up leading me to be vulnerable to strangers on the internet. And so I ended up being exploited by other people on the internet Mm -hmm. because I thought that um, online sexual relationships and exchanging photos was normal and expected of me. Mm -hmm. And so it gave, it it made me a lot more vulnerable to predators on the internet that ended up taking advantage of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and exploiting me that way through child sexual abuse images and relationships with them online. Because um, mm-hmm. I also had been groomed to believe that, oh, this is how I earned the love and attention that I want. Right. And had been groomed to believe that I'm only worth what I can offer someone else sexually. Mm-hmm. Because of what my mom had groomed me to believe, what she, how she was exploiting me, the sexual abuse by that church leader when I was 11, I also experienced sexual abuse by a relative when I was maybe 15. I'm not really sure. I can't tell you exact ages for when all of this happened. (laughs) I can't even Mm -hmm. tell you the exact ages I was when my mom was exploiting me. It's all very much a blur because it's just Mm -hmm. chaos and confusion and turmoil. Um, 
but yeah, her exploiting me led me to be further exploited by people on the internet. And that's again why I have no clue what's still out there of me. And that's something a lot of survivors of online sexual exploitation deal with is you've got no idea what's still out there. Mm -hmm. And you constantly have that fear of something popping up or somebody you know finding something. Um, and that's really terrifying. Right. So with your story, so after you were able to get out the second time, um, what brought you into doing the work that you're doing with flight? Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually was able to, uh, during the couple years after I left my family, I got married to the most wonderful husband in the world. <laughs> to this day, he um, he is able to provide, he loves me just for me, not because of what I offer. And especially being a survivor, that's something I struggle with all the time of feeling worthy of love without offering anything. Mm-hmm. And um, And he just provides that unconditional love in that safe place for me to process all of this and god love him he has stuck by me in really hard times as i like am continuing this journey of healing mm-hmm. um and then we moved to florida um mm-hmm. and it w- actually wasn't until we moved to florida that i was able to learn and understand that what i had experienced was sexual exploitation um and it wasn't until i was already working with youth that i had experienced sexual exploitation Mm -hmm. And was looking at these youth and was feeling like I was working with 15-year-old versions of me. And I went, oh, I relate to these youth a lot more than I thought I do. Um, And I kind of of fell into it. I wanted to work in, I knew I wanted to work with foster youth or like youth that had experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So I started working in a foster care shelter. And then that ended up closing down due to COVID. And my only option was to transfer to a safe home for minor females who had experienced sexual exploitation with the same organization. It was, we had just moved to Florida, used all of our savings to get here. My husband didn't have a job yet. So it was kind of my only choice to have a job. And so I literally fell straight into it. And that's when I realized how important safe home care is and why I'm so passionate about it. because honestly, that's what, that's essentially what my best friend's family did for me. They provided me a safe home <laughs> to learn life skills I needed to learn, to experience unconditional love, to just be able to start coming out of survival mode, to even have reliable meals, to even have reliable hygiene products. Um, all of that is what an effective safe home program does. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and I worked there for a while like um, ended up working up to where I was one of the ones running the safe home Um, and then transitioned out of that into something new and now I'm doing survivor mentorship which is Mm -hmm. essentially a lot of what I did at the safe home mentoring youth just outside of a residential program Mm -hmm. so I go and I meet with um, youth and young adults ages like 12 to 28 who have experienced um, sexual exploitation And I just get to, I have the privilege of being able to walk with them through life, whether they're currently experiencing or they've gotten out of exploitation. Um, One thing I'm super passionate about, especially within safe home care, is teaching life skills. 
a lot of people don't realize that when you're going through that complex trauma and all of that, like you don't learn a lot of life skills. I was mm-hmm. 16 before this is like used to be embarrassed about it. And now I'm not, I was 16 before I learned how to wash my body properly in the shower or learn proper dental hygiene or even menstrual care hygiene. Um, I didn't know how to clean. I had grown up in a home that was filthy, rotting food everywhere, cat and dog, cats and dogs going to the bathroom everywhere. Like Mm it had no concept of that, but also had no idea that there were, that there's a, you could handle anger without physical aggression or violence. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing until I lived with my best friend's family and got to watch them, healthy people, handle anger in a way without screaming, verbally abusing someone else, being physically aggressive. And I was, it threw me for a loop and I didn't understand it. I looked at them and I was like, y'all are crazy. (laughs) Y'all are so weird. I've never, I felt so uncomfortable because I was like, what kind of house is this? It's kept, it's like well-maintained and clean and hygienic. And you have food all the time, like that I get reliable meals and I get, they help me uh, learn a lot. And it was just through them being healthy people and they modeled the behavior for me. And that's what safe homes do. They, the staff can model the behavior for the youth, um, which is what, that's what got me out. That's what helped me, helps me be a functioning adult today is what I learned living with them. And that's what effective safe home programs do. That's why I'm just, it's my safe homes are my heart and soul. I'm so <laughs> passionate about it. Well, we're glad because we know that um, it's so important. And I know that like for myself, I didn't get into uh safe home like that until I was an adult and I was actually in a program where um, the the college program that I was doing the church itself would sponsor students so you would just get a room in their house so you weren't paying for room and board Mm -hmm. Um, but you like you know you helped them out and you did different things but I, I remember the the first two families I stayed with I stayed with one each year and I was just like you guys eat dinner together every night. Yes. <laughs> and the the couple, like, they never fought. Like, they were the best united front that I have ever mm-hmm. seen in my life. They never disagreed in front of their children. Now, they did go and take walks where they discussed <laughs> things <laughs> privately. But when they came back, they were a united front, and you would not... <laughs> Oh, that's not be, yeah and I remember thinking when I grow up you know even being 18 19 I was like when I grow up I'm not going to yell at people either uh-huh I know <laughs> and that is so funny you mentioned the the fact of them eating dinner together that mm-hmm. was something that I was so shocked and confused about when I first met my husband's family his family is so wonderful we're so close with them they're loving and affectionate they're another second family for me um they when I first started dating my husband I would go over to their house and spend time with him and his family and they would sit down and eat dinner together and they ate dinner together every single night and afterwards they would play board games or card games together every time and it would go so it didn't end with like arguing it didn't end with physical violence it didn't end with um 
all this other stuff. And I was so confused. I was like, you do this all the time? You play like a card game every night after you eat dinner? And y'all are like a loving family? You don't, <laughs> you know, attack each other? Just sitting down? I could not tell you, like, that's not a memory I have growing up with my family is sitting down and eating dinner together. And even if we did once in a blue moon, sit down and eat a meal together, it always ended horrifically. <laughs> and so that was something I was so confused at when I first met his family. But now I know that's part of why they're so close, so healthy, yep. so loving towards each other. Cause they take that quality time with each other. Hey, Zona here. Hope you're enjoying today's episode. Just wanted to drop in and talk to you about our partnership program that is launching with Bring Freedom, February 15, 2023. We are going to be walking you through exactly how to have a personalized response for your community to um, trafficking, to exploitation, uh, to people presenting even with you know, domestic violence or, or abuse, because we want you to have a powerful response with the support that you need in order to make the best change and to have the safest community that you can possibly live in. The way that we're going to do that is that we have several tiers, including uh, individual or family tier, a small business or a small nonprofit or a large business or a large nonprofit in order to help work with you, to equip you, to get the training that you need to understand what your response should be in your community, what things are already there and active, and how can you tap into those things, but fundamentally to not let anybody fall through the cracks. What we're able to offer through the partnership program is hands-on monthly trainings. We'll be able to walk you through the bonus material from our podcast, including um, the question and answer content with our persons with lived experience that will be available to you twice a month. We will also have uh, our office hours where you'll be able to Come right in and ask Dixie and I questions, and we'll have other experts on there as well so that you can get the answers and the connections that you need for your community, and we can help you troubleshoot anything that you're not finding. You will also have all of the recordings from our All for One Challenge that will be available to you uh, as a free bonus if you sign up now before our launch, February 15th, as you're a part of the development of further materials for prevention and awareness and the very best way to get this information out so that we have the safest communities possible. Go ahead and visit us at bringfreedom.org in order to find out more. I think, yeah, for me, I love your passion about CFOMs. Um, when I first got into being an abolitionist or an advocate, um, that was really something on my heart is for the minors that come out of being exploited, um, for them to have a safe family to, yeah, model that healthy relationship and um, they can see how a, how a household can be run 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, some without abuse, and um, that that's really my my interest yeah. and, and passion is having that that safe safe family, I guess, for each. Oh yeah, each and one thing I feel like that I also am. I could talk about this all day long, but I'll keep it brief. <laughs> one thing that I'm. Um, that I'm also a big advocate for when it comes to safe homes is for people to realize that it's not it's not flowers and roses. It's not like, oh, they come into the safe home and it's, oh, they can talk about their trauma and they can learn these new skills immediately and they're going to be comfortable and feel safe. <laughs> like, for example, I can't tell you how many youth would come into the safe home and maybe they have a history of juvenile criminal charges of like battery and assault and they've been taught been taught and raised by their families that you handle anger through physical aggression i can't expect that youth to come into a safe home and all of a sudden change and handle their anger differently and so you might have a lot of instances where you're calling law enforcement because of this girl this teenager's physical aggression and you feel frustrated because you're like you want them to you know that they're safe in this safe home you know that you love them and you know that you're not going to harm them, but it takes so much time and so much consistency of like safe home staff sitting there and saying, like, say law enforcement is called, that girl ends up getting arrested, but then she gets to come back. It takes safe home staff when they come back to say, hey, we're cool. What do you want to make for dinner tonight? <laughs> and not treating them yeah. differently and loving them anyways and not holding that against them and then staff slowly modeling those new skills and mm -hmm. over time those youth can watch staff and how they handle it and um and staff can help redirect them and their emotions and their anger and it takes a long time but then they begin can begin to learn new skills and a lot of times we get youth into safe homes and people and they've already been labeled as bad yeah and especially with all these juvenile criminal charges but what they don't understand is these are youth who have experienced things that nobody should ever have to experience in their life and they're doing the best they can to cope with it how they know how it takes a very long time of you slowly redirecting modeling new life skills modeling new behaviors and loving them unconditionally throughout all of that by saying doesn't matter how many times you cuss me out, I'm going to love you anyway. <laughs> and I'm going to be here and I'm not going anywhere. Doesn't matter how many times you do that, I'm not going to respond with physical aggression. I'm not going to respond by cussing you out right back. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be safe and I'm going to love you anyway. <laughs> it takes a long time through that. Um, but that's what's so, so important is um, I struggle with that a lot with at working at the safe home because so many people would say oh you work at a safe home like did you rescue them off the street and like pull them out of the basements and shackles and i was like no <laughs> it's not how that worked and a lot of times the youth didn't want to be in the safe home necessarily because yeah. they didn't self-identify they didn't think they needed to be there uh, they didn't think that they needed to be taught new things <laughs> and um and also they're they've been ripped away from everything they know and thrown into new situations we can't expect them to just automatically be okay with that and do what we think is best for them immediately um but that's what 
I, I love it so much and I definitely in the future want to re-enter the world of residential care for um, like specifically for victims of sex trafficking um, because that's just my heart and soul and that's is so important to me especially with what I um, with my best friend's family that's how that's what got me out that's what helped me begin healing so I definitely at some point want to re-enter that world in some form or fashion. I um I used to have people come to me and they're like, well, how do I know that I'm somebody that can get involved with fighting human trafficking and, you know, working directly with people? And I would always say this. I said, how do you handle being lied to? Do you take it personally? Because if you take it personally, you're not ready. <laughs> because you're going to be lied to and mm -hmm. you're going to have every bit of pride just beaten out of you because it has to be more about them than it is about you. Yep. So if you're somebody that, you know, you think that if you're being lied to, you're being disrespected, it's just not going to work. <laughs> not hands-on with people, but, you know, there are other things they can get involved in. <laughs> oh, yeah, it definitely takes a, uh, um, takes a lot to work directly with youth and young adults that have experienced sex trafficking. Um, because a lot of things people don't understand is complex trauma results in complex behaviors and it's not pretty. It's not, oh, they're out of their exploitation and they immediately can begin healing. Um, it's, it's not like that at all. There's, <laughs> um, a lot of the, a lot of youth especially have, are on probation for charges, whether that's charges that their trafficker, you know, had a hand in hand in that or if it's battery and assault charges because they don't know another way to handle anger or conflict um and so it's definitely something i can't tell you how many times i've been cussed out at the safe home i was a normal occurrence um to be verbally threatened and um sometimes physically <laughs> um attacked um and so it definitely wasn't something that was easy and it takes very special people to do it because <laughs> you have to look at that I told myself all the time I would look at that youth and say they are doing the best they can with the tools mm -hmm. they have been given and that's all I can ask of them right and I'm giving them and this is an I would tell myself all the time this is an opportunity to show them that I am different than the people that they've come in contact with before this is an opportunity for me to show them no matter what you say to me, no matter how much you cuss me out, I'm not going to attack you. I'm not going to hit you. I'm not going to verbally attack you. And I'm going to love you and provide and help provide for you without that and show them that I'm going to love you even if you feel like you haven't earned it <laughs> because you don't have to. You're worth being loved just for how you are, not because you're having to earn my love with your actions or productivity or whatever. Um, and so that's something that a lot of people, I would say to a lot of new staff at the safe home to help them kind of cope with it a little bit better, I would say, hey, when they're cussing you out, tell yourself this is an opportunity. <laughs> I get to show them that I'm different and that I get to show them there's a different way, there's a different life, there's a different way to handle things, and there's different types of people out there and right. show them not everyone is going to hurt you <laughs> not everyone is going to exploit you and so it's definitely a privilege and an opportunity to show them hey i'm different and there are other 
there's different ways out there. Right. Well, and there are two, like, if we think about our lives, right? So even healthy, uh, fully engaged, you know, like, in, in, you know, well-adjusted adults, um, we have a difficult time adding in new coping skills. Mm-hmm. Like, let alone the the trauma and maybe, you know, not having a safe place to sleep and not having good nutrition and not having, you know, all of those things. Like, all of those pieces come together to give your brain the elasticity that it needs to form new connections and pathways and all of those mm-hmm. things. So, it's like, that that's a process. Your body needs 30, 60, 90 days just to, like, start the physical transition process of like, oh, we are getting food regularly. Okay, well, now what do we do with this stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does that look like? And um, it, it it's, it's very simple, but impactful things. And that's one of the pieces like we're talking about uh, with prevention. People are like, oh, I have to be, you know, this expert inviting trafficking and it's like Mm -hmm. no even if you can provide a meal even if you can you know be that safe person that is you know even at like a a cheer practice that's a parent of another kid where you're just like hey if you ever need anything I'm safe you know being there being present being part of community and and you know maybe letting your friends um your child's friend that may be a little rough around the edges Mm -hmm. um, have a safe place to feel loved even if it isn't necessarily how you would run your house or how you would normally (laughs) let let kids act (laughs) oh I definitely was not a easy kid to take in (laughs) I came with a lot I can't tell you how many times um, my best friend's mom and I had come to Jesus meetings. We would go to the local Mexican restaurant and sit down, me and her, and she would say, girl, this is not going to fly. I love you, but we need to make some changes. Um, and even things that, um, even like silly things that, um, like I did, like I said, I didn't know how to take care of like menstrual care stuff. And so I would have, um, like definitely not take care of it in the hygienic way. and they would, my best friend's mom would lovingly say, girl, this is not how you keep yourself clean. This is not how you take care of yourself. And it was in a way that was very non-judgmental, didn't humiliate me, but she still did it in a loving way of being like, hey, we're gonna handle it this (laughs) differently. Calling me out, but in a loving way that was teaching me and didn't make me feel bad about it. And, um, And that's one thing, like, just like you said, you don't need all of this, knowledge and degrees and expertise i just tell people i'm like you just need to to get started and help you just need to be a safe person with willing to give unconditional love because so much with trafficking and sexual exploitation love is conditional love it it's conditional on transaction on what you give what you what is taken from you and so unconditional love is so huge of just being able to say I love you no matter what. I love you just you sitting right there, nothing else. <laughs> love you for that. And uh, that's why I tell people all the time. I'm like, you don't need all of this extra stuff. I don't have I don't have a college degree. I don't have all of this training. I have like my lived experience and I have unconditional love. And that's all I need to do what I'm doing right now <laughs> and continue with that. And even people who don't have lived experience don't need all of this extra stuff. My 
my best friend's family, they couldn't have told you what sex trafficking was or childhood exploitation. They couldn't tell you about complex trauma or all of this stuff, and they didn't need to. All they needed was to give me a safe place of unconditional love. That's it. And they had the biggest impact on me and my life without all that extra knowledge. <laughs> I love that. It's, that's powerful. And, uh, it really speaks volumes about the power of love. And, uh, that's just awesome. But, um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We are so excited for you to save the date for March 30th, 31st, and April 1st. No, this is not an April Fool's joke, but we have our very next free training that will be scheduled during that time where we'll be bringing you the latest and best practices from experts in the field that'll really help you have things you can implement in your own life to be a safe person, to make your community a safer place, and for you to have a response to fight human trafficking so that we together can end this in our lifetime. So make sure you save the dates, March 30th, 31st, and April 1st for our next free training. Well, we wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. We were wanting to know, um, where do you recommend people getting plugged in? I know you had mentioned uh, in our talk before um, an agency that was certifying foster families. Um, yes, I don't have a whole lot of information about that. <laughs> I don't okay. really know. It's by like other word of mouth. Okay. Um, I believe they're called uh, Devereaux. They, an agency in Florida that helps certify um, HT safe foster homes. Um, I don't quote me on that. <laughs> uh, but in terms of getting in contact with me, um, the best way would just be on LinkedIn. I'm still very cautious. I mean, given my experience, I'm still very cautious about giving out anything else <laughs> social media yes. wise. Um, and so LinkedIn is definitely the place um to reach out i check that frequently perfect and i'll go ahead and research everyone put that in the show notes as well as your linkedin okay just cool. in case <laughs> <laughs> we're really glad that you shared that with us mm -hmm. and um truly has been an honor just getting to have you on the podcast and getting to know you and it's been really nice well thank you for having me i'm so again i'm so grateful for this to getting to know both of you but then also again the providing a safe environment. Um, but I've loved being here and talking with y'all. <laughs> Thank you, Becca. It was amazing. <laughs> you did a great job.